take your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in front of you. Also, the scripture we'll use is in your sermon notes, if you were handed those as you came in. And most of it will also be on the screen to make it easier for you to follow along with us. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel with this topic or theme, God's story, your part. We've stated that God has a plan and a purpose for your life, but there are sections of it that require your decisions, your obedience, your direction. This morning, I'm going to preach a message I've entitled simply, The Holiness of God. The Holiness of God. Now, this morning, we're actually going to cover, or most, technically the story we're going to look at covers all of chapter 5 and 6. So it's going to be different. Normally I go section by section. I kind of try to dissect the sections for time. I'm going to be a little more kind of catching you up. We're going to go sections as we go through. Probably won't read every section of the two chapters, but you get an idea of what's going on as we look at this idea of the holiness of God. We're going to begin by reading the first five verses. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, the Bible says this, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it unto the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off from the threshold Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the priest of Dagon nor any that came into Dagon's house tread on the slush floor of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. Father, we love you. We thank you for the power of Scripture and the power of the Gospel. We truly believe it is life-transforming. And Lord, we understand that one of the reasons is we worship a holy God. And why that's so important is because it is your holiness, Lord, that gives you power, that gives you sovereignty, that gives you the ability to be able to help us, to guide us, and yes, to judge us. Father, I pray that not only would we get a full understanding of what's taking place in the Scripture, more importantly, the principles that come from it, Lord, that are true today as they were in this day, what we're reading. I pray, Father, we listen on purpose. More importantly, may we do, may we take heed to what you give to us today. We love you, Father. I do pray you bless. Give me the words to say in Jesus' name. Amen. In, these, in this section of Scripture, as we look at, kind of survey the next two chapters, what we know as we studied the last couple of weeks, Israel had gone to war. They had went to war and they lost. And so they thought, well, God's not with them. They knew that to be a fact, but that didn't bother them. They thought they can kind of manipulate God. They brought the Ark of the Covenant in. And, of course, they lost 4,000 in the first war. The second war, they lost 30,000 men. And they lost the Ark of the Covenant. You know that Hophni and Phinehas both died in war. And when they came back and told Eli what had happened, he fell, probably had a stroke, fell and broke his neck. He died. When his daughter-in-law, I think it was Phinehas' wife, heard it, she went to premature labor, died giving birth, named her son Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. That is building up to this point. So the the ark is gone. The ark is now in a different place, really held by the enemy. So we see that they've now had it. We'll learn later. They've had this for seven months. This is a very, very dark time for the children of Israel. 
What I want to do, though, is look at the passage and the focus of the attention on the idea of the holiness of God. Can I, can I give you an understanding of what I mean by that a little bit? I think we all know, truthfully, as Scripture teaches us, that God is a gracious and a loving God, a forgiving God. The Bible says His mercy is everlasting and grace endures. It's kind of new every day. Every day we get up, the grace is there, the mercies is there. He is long-suffering. We cannot sin to the point where God gets rid of us, but yet we know sin is a problem. He's a gracious God, a loving God, but we also know the Bible teaches He is a holy God. But what does it mean? In a holiness, some people say it's just another word for justice or harshness. But His holiness is actually about His goodness and His power and His strength. So let me give you an example. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we go back and ask the question, what is the word, what, what do we talk about the fear of the Lord? So I've heard people say that we, you know, that God is great and terrible, an Old Testament passage says. So we should be afraid of God. God's waiting the moment we mess up to strike us down. Well, no, that's not what it means to fear God. Well, then there's the other side. Well, what that really means, and by the way, the word we use today is a respect of God, which I believe that to be true. Can I tell you, though, if we're not careful, here's what we do with that word respect. This would be fear. We tremble. We're afraid that God's going to see us and strike us down, right? That would be. The other extreme, if we're not careful on the idea of respect is we know God's there, but he's not going to strike us down. Nah. You catch the difference there? Fear to indifference. That's not what it means. You know the word that Bible uses for respect? It's reverence. It's awe. He is the creator of the universe. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the great I am. He is uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is all of that. He is the hev God of heaven and the God of earth and the God over hell. And he is the one that will ultimately judge everyone. And if you don't know that, you say, well, it's not a big deal. If that's your view, if your view of God is very indifferent, you know what's going to happen? Your view of sin will become indifferent. Your view of eternity will become indifferent. As a matter of fact, you might sit over here and say, well, I, did God really make hell? Does it really matter if I sin? He knows I'm a sinner. Does it really matter if I sin? God will forgive me anyway. So we sin, we say a little prayer and move on. That's the indifferent view of God. Now, I'm not asking us to go to the side of fear as we understand it today. But let, let me give you a simple example. It's a bad example. I'm giving an example of it. I joked about this. There's a couple things in our nature I'm not big fans of. One are spiders. The other one are snakes. All right? Um, spiders, I've gotten a little better at because I've come to acknowledge in my older age how much bigger I am than them. All right? So if I can get over the crunch, I can move on to killing them. That's not a problem. Snakes... I don't care if it's six inches or six feet. It's a sign of Satan. Stay away. I'll never forget my last church. I worked for my uncle. He, he and my, my, my dad's family grew up in Brazil. And they were given this truth. Every snake's a bad snake. Now remember, in where they lived most in the interior of Brazil, there was a lot of poisonous snakes. My dad told the story. He walked in the pantry. He saw a colorful rope in the pantry. And he went to grab it till it moved. He realized it was a coral snake. I don't know much except to know that those are, those are dangerous. He, he remembers walking away, called his dad, which his dad went and killed it. And I'm like, my grandpa's awesome, right? He killed, I'd be running. I'd be like, we're never going home. That's where I'd be. But I'll never forget when my, uh, in, 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 um, in, down in Conyers area, there was a lot of big, what they call black snakes. They're very long, fat and ugly. But from what I know, and I could be wrong, please, I don't need to know if I'm wrong, right? but what I understand, they're not really out to get people. They're more about eating rats. People say they're great to have around. They kill the rats. 
I can get a guy to get rid of the rats. I don't need the snakes, all right? I'll pay a professional for that. But they had caught one, and they'd cut its head off so that nobody would know, right? Then they brought it in to see what my uncle would do. Now, the thing's missing a head. They had it in a little bag, but they brought the snake in. And I'm sitting in my office, and all of a sudden, I am, this is, I'm convinced that we're being robbed. There's a shooter or a fire or something in the building because my uncle starts screaming, Get that on here! I mean, at the top of his voice. And I'm walking out like, what's going on? I mean, I'm grabbing my phone. Like, do I get to film this? What's going on? And I walk out as a bunch of teenagers are laughing at my uncle. He's dead, pastor. Get him out. I mean, he was mad. Well, then, like, this happened something here. My son, if he were here, he'd love to tell the story. Back a few years ago, when we had a school, uh, we were getting ready to go to a soccer game. And apparently, several guys caught a garter snake in our bathroom. Now, it was a decent sized one. When I need decent, you know, I felt like it was like this, it's probably six inches. But anyway, they come back and say, Pastor, guess what we caught? It was still alive, by the way, and they threw it at me. I don't know if it's just me, but that snake began to grow into a bow constrictor as it was coming at me. All right? That's all I could see. And I ran. Now, you think I would have picked it up and threw it back. No, I grabbed the nearest stick and I started chasing down the kids. I'm like, what are you doing? They're laughing hysterically. What's it going to do to you, Pastor? I don't know. I never have to know because I'm not getting close enough to it. Now, in reality, because see, when we, when we first went to ministry, we lived in a house in Alabama and they kept warning us about this thing called copperhead snakes. Copperheads are dangerous. I've been told that. I've never been close enough to know. Here's what they would tell you in the, in the South. You'll know if it's a poisonous snake by the shape of its eye. I'm like, what? You get close enough, you'll know. You mean like three seconds before it kills me? Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not getting close enough to that snake. My wife, she's out one morning and she goes, guess what I saw going through our ditch under the, under the driveway? I'm like that. She goes, it was a copperhead. I said, hun, we're moving. I mean, that was kind of what I was thinking. Now, those are dangerous, right? Now, I'm, I am afraid at a distance. I'm not asking you to be afraid of God like that, but you understand my point? If you're indifferent to an, certain animals, they can come back to haunt you. If you're indifferent to God, you miss out on His holiness. You also miss out. See, embracing the holiness of God is one step towards enjoying the peace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. All of the wonderful things God wants to do starts with embracing the holiness of God. Because if we ignore the holiness of God, then Satan will convince us we can live in sin. You know what happens when you live in sin? You live in captivity. You live in shame. You live in guilt. God never intended us to live here. But Satan says this is freedom. We all know this is not freedom. But if we don't embrace the holiness of God, we'll live there. So let's look a little bit at this idea of the holiness of God. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the story in front of us and then pull some principles from it simply with this basis. Understanding the holiness of God brings both reverence and great joy to Christians. God's holiness demands justice and a response to sin. God's holiness gives power and great hope to those of us who follow Him. Three thoughts that we'll see from this passage this morning. First thought is this. Our sin can lead others into sin. Our sin can lead others into sin. So what I'm going to do is start by looking back 
and see a little bit of what we had said just a moment ago. We know that Hophni and Phinehas had been taking, abusing their position as priests. They had been stealing money, stealing other things. They had been uh, involved in immorality with women that were coming, uh, just filthy things, and they deserved the punishment they got. But the problem was, we also see that the priest Eli, the father, did not stop them. He didn't reverence the position enough to stop his sons. And because of that, God was done and he removed Hophni and Phinehas. We see the emptiness of the believing. The believing that bringing the ark of God would somehow change God's view and force God to bless them, bringing that to the war. Because of the carnal view of God and His commands, they drove the children of Israel into sin. We see this back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. They can't put away something they did not have. The people had gone against the commands of God and the commands of the Lord to follow other gods. God warned them what would come if they did. Can I give you one thought, though, before we... I'm going to give you three principles from this and we'll move on. We look at Eli, we looked at Hophni and Phinehas, and we see a large portion of Israel engaged in idol worship. Remember how we started the book of 1 Samuel? Who were we looking at? Hannah. Hannah. And her husband and her family, every year they came up and worshipped. They loved God. Here's the thing I want you to understand. We often look at our circumstance or our decisions and we blame the world. We blame others. Well, God hasn't punished them, so they're okay. I don't think God's that mad. I don't think God's going to do this. And somehow we've justified the willingness to live a certain way based upon the indifference of a holy God. And sometimes you say, well, God is just such an evil culture. God won't bless. God blessed that family immensely in the midst of a very, very carnal place. You don't need other people to worship God, to follow God. You can follow and worship God all alone in a culture. God's always had a remnant, even in the worst times to worship Him. Three thoughts from this. One, the progression of sin. This just started... Simply with people just not worshiping God as they were commanded. And they moved away, and then they moved to other gods. But it didn't end there. You see, when we are not placing God in His rightful place, this is just the start of what comes next. If I live in indifference to God down here and not understanding His holiness, He won't judge. It's not that big of a deal. He's a loving God. He understands me. He understands where I'm at. He understands the reason I did this. You know what we do? We justify our sin in that indifference. And it's just the progression. It starts. It starts with, you know what? I, don't, I, I can come to church randomly. I'll read my Bible a little bit. I don't need to do this. I don't need to serve. You ever seen people so actively involved in church a few years later barely go? This is where it starts. Because, if, by the way, if your reason for coming to church and serving in all of this is to be seen, it's empty. Why do we do this? The holiness of God. Because I'm afraid he's going to strike me down if I don't come. No, because I get to worship a holy God, and there's nothing in this world more important than that. Amen? So what is going to hold me back? from doing it what's going to stop me i want to be here david said i was excited when they said let's go to the house of god this is where i can go and i can sing and i can hear the word of god preach and i can learn from god because i love him and the moment i lose this this becomes spiritual Did you catch that this becomes spiritual 
I don't sit in the middle anymore. I'm okay with this. Can I tell you what happens here, though? My marriage falls apart. My family falls apart. My finances fall apart. Every part of my life begins to disintegrate because the foundation that God has promised to bless is not me. It's not even me being saved. It's me putting Him first. And it starts with just saying, God, I'll make you number three or four of my life. But it's also, too, the contagious nature of sin. You see, it did not just stop with just a few people. Ultimately, many in the nation followed the example of these people. Enough for God to bring horrible judgment. 34,000 men die. The ark is gone. The priests are taken out. The chaos we talked about last week comes. And it just grew. And by the way, it might have started with the priests, and it might have started with Hophni and Phinehas, but it could have stopped there. But it just kept growing. It just kept growing because our hearts want to go the wrong direction. The moment we have a justification, we do it. It's contagious. Please understand, no matter how little you think of your sin, or maybe you think no one knows it, it will affect others. Nobody knows. You've heard this. You've heard this. This is a lot in the news today. Well, that it's a victimless crime. It's a victimless crime. I was listening a little bit. I don't listen to a whole lot of talk news, mostly because I get irate and irritated. But I was listening a little bit to it, and they were talking about the idea of some of the towns in Philadelphia after the riots, some of the businesses that didn't reopen. You know the comment was? It's a victimless crime. They're insured. Now, I don't know. We're insured. But you know how much it costs us to call the insurance? You know, it's 1000 bucks just to start the process. That's my point. It's, you say it's a victimless crime. I, I wouldn't go back to a store that's been robbed or burnt down. I remember watching that. And here's the problem. We say that. It's a victimless sin. It only hurts me. It's not a big deal. By the way, even if somehow there were a victimless, if we can call that sin, the moment I start putting my sin above God and justifying it, it affects everyone around me. If nothing else, fathers, your family deserves a man of God. Mothers, your family deserves a woman of God. Teens, you should strive to be a child of God and grow in God. And I'm not talking perfect, but I'm talking growing closer to God. This is what God wants us. That's why he's put us here. The world lives down there. It's fine. And we are still going to struggle. But I think sometimes the idea that we're going to struggle justifies living down there. We don't have to live down there. And it's destruction. It grows. It's contagious to other people. The destruction of sin. Then sin causes a great loss of life and great misery for the nation. It's sin caused a great loss and great misery for the nation. Sin, by the way, always takes us further than we thought it would. And generally, it's so simple, we don't even realize we're there. You ever look back and said, how did we get here? You look at a marriage that at one point was so exciting, and then you look back and say, I don't even know if I want to be with that person anymore. And, say, and please remember, they might be saying the same thing about you. Right? You know, you wake up, sometimes we wake up and look in the mirror, I don't be with that person anymore. All right, we do that. You know what happens? Because we didn't realize how slow this slope was. Before you know it, we're so far from God. I mean, can I tell you the core? The core of sin, the core of holiness, the, God, the core of happiness is simply not where's my church, where's my culture, where's my community, where's my family. Where am I with God? That's what it is. Where am I with God? If I want my marriage better, get closer to God. You say, well, I think I'm going to get my husband or wife to go to counseling and so so-and-so can tell them how wrong they are. It doesn't work that way. They may be wrong, but it doesn't work that way. 
The simple answer, you want your marriage to get better? You get closer to God and let God work in the heart of the other person. You want your family to love God? You see the point? Get on your knees. You say, well, I tried this and I tried that. You know, it's easy for us to come back and say, I tried this and I tried that and I tried this. It's the only promises of God that we have. And Satan wants you to believe it won't work. Satan wants to believe it's not a big deal and wants us to blame everyone else in the world except taking the responsibility that God's put in front of us. It'll always take us further than we thought. Number two, true Christianity is not seen in outward symbols. True Christianity is not seen in outward symbols. Chapter 6 Again, we read the first five verses. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to its pl- his, his place. And they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering, that ye, that ye, then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five gold emeroids, five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore ye shall make images of your emeroids and images of your mice that mar the land and shall give the glory unto the God of Israel. Peradventure he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods and from off your land. So in this passage, what we see is the greatness of God over false religion. So let me explain what happens first. The, temp, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in this temple by the god Dagon. And we could talk a lot about who he was, many call him the fish god. My concern is not who he was. Here's what happens. They place the Ark in there as a, a, a kind of a victory from war. They would bring back the spoils of war, and to bring back Israel's Ark of the Covenant was a huge spoil. They put it in there. As a reminder, we've won. So they put it in there, they come the next day, and that God of Ashdod's on the ground. They're like, wow. They might have thought, man, someone knocked him over. So they pick up the God, which should have told you right there there's a problem. They pick up the God. The next day, he's fall over again. This time his head's cut off and his hands are missing. You see, why is that important? Because when one king would beat another king, you know what they do? They would at least cut off the hands, but often cut the head off as a sign of victory. God's standing there saying, I've defeated this God a long time ago. Because that God was just a God of Satan. At this point, they're like, we're staying away. They understood the imagery in there. Then, as they have this, they begin to get this massive plague. I mean, a serious plague that came through. A serious plague. In fact, many believe it was a level of boils that came from a great disease, probably brought on by rats, which is probably where it came from, which explains some of what we read and what they were going through. Extremely painful, could be deadly, so what, is, what are we learning from this? What are some things we can look at? One, God stands alone as the only true God. God stands alone as the only true God. Our symbols are not the sign of true Christianity. One of the things I see a lot today, I don't have a problem with it at all, is people wearing you know, the chain with the cross. I don't have a problem with that. As a matter of fact, we're one of the few uh, out there that don't really have a symbol. Other people dress a certain way or whatever. Um, I was watching the show last night and this guy's in the hospital and he's sitting next to a priest. And he immediately turns and starts talking to the priest because a priest had on the collar. And I'm like, nobody would know if I'm in a hospital I'm a pastor. You know, I don't know if I wear you know, a clergy hat or something. Or uh, How would they know? But that was it. We don't have an outward symbol. And by the way, I love the unashamed nature of that. But can I tell you that we can put as many t-shirts on that talk about Jesus and put as many crosses in our house, that doesn't get us closer to God. 
It should be an outward symbol of what's going on inside. And the world today tells you, you believe in God. Just believe that God exists. You're good. The Bible clearly states the devils believe and tremble. Belief in God is not enough. You must put your faith in God. You must go further. I know God exists. That's okay. That's not enough. You must put your faith in that God. He must become your Lord and your Savior. And you put your faith in Him. Symbols don't do that. And he showed us that God stands alone as the only true God. Years ago, I was in what we call my ordination council. So preachers, you know that we carry this title, reverend. I'm not a fan of it. I do have it. I don't use it. When I sign official documents, when I sign merit certificates, I have to sign Reverend Rodney Love. It's weird. Right? The moment I finished it, my pastor looked at me and goes, you are not reverend. I'm like, thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. Anyway, I remember what they do is they bring in other preachers and they question you to see where you stand. Can the church ordain you? And so as I'm asking all of these questions, I had written somewhere in my notes, that, in my notes I give everybody, that God is a God who? And that word A. And one of the gentlemen, pastors, raised his hand. He'd actually just come off the mission field to Cameroon and was now in Georgia. And he looked, he goes, can I mention you something about that phrase? I'm like, sure. He's like, around here in America, that's not that big of a deal. But where I'm from, there are hundreds of gods. And when you identify Jehovah as a God, people are perfectly fine with that because he's just one of the many. When you point out Jehovah as the only God, that's the difference. He goes, he's not one of the gods. There is only one God. The rest of them are false gods. There's God and false gods. The Bible has God and big G, and the rest of them is little g's. There is God, Jehovah, God Almighty, and then there's everyone else, and they're not real. There is only one God. He's not just our God in comparison to other ones. He is the only God. And he stands as the only true God. Why is that important? Because if we just believe that any God can get us to heaven, we'll put our faith in religion, and it'll end us in a place called hell. And God doesn't want us there. Number, the second thing we see is God's power was on display. Let's go back and look at a little bit of the, in chapter 5 or 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeroids, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of God of Israel about hither. And it was so that after they carried about, the hand of the Lord was against the city in a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great. And they had emeroids in their secret parts. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it go again to his own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emeroids, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This idea is talking about sore boils caused by an epidemic, probably of the bubonic plague carried by rats. The spread of the disease and its deadly effects. 
is what we're probably looking at right now, this great disease. We see their pain. We see the great pain they were in. In chapter 6, verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines even months, in seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners saying, what shall we do to the ark? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to places. And they said, you shall send it away. Send the ark of God of Israel. Send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. Then you shall be healed and it shall be known to you why his hand is not, is not removed from you. The Prilatines are pretty sure they knew what was happening. They knew of the God. They knew what God had done to the people of Egypt with the plagues. And now they were convinced that was happening to them. This was God's judgment. He showed his power. Can I tell you this? God's judgment is coming, even if people don't want to believe in an almighty God. Every once in a while, I'll catch somebody. We'll talk about eternity. We'll talk about this. And like, well, you can believe that, but I don't. I don't believe that. And I, we live in a country where people have a right to have their own beliefs. And to be honest, that doesn't, that doesn't anger me. I don't get upset. I don't get offended. I've had people throughout the years, oh, you believe in God. I think it's silly. All right, that's fine. You know what, I don't, I don't need a God. And they go and talk about all these other things. Some of them I've met have a horrible background with religion. And because of that, they have a negative view of God. And I would say, based upon their experience, understandably. I, I just don't like God. I struggle with Him. I don't believe it. And I understand that. Can I tell you, God's existence does not, is not based upon whether I believe it is or not. Right? God's existence and the power that God has and the truth of creation does not exist if a scientist and the government agrees with it. I don't need the government to tell me that my God is real. It's more than like the current government will do everything to tell me He's not. I don't need anybody else to tell me he's real. And if you want me to believe that what we see around us, this, this, crea- this, this beauty of the earth is a freak of nature, it takes more faith to believe that than an almighty God created it. Just think about what it takes for you just to get some medical treatment. Ah, oh, we're an accident. We started from a big bang. Hey, no, we did. Yeah, it was a big bang. God said, let there be light, right? He spoke and it was there. See, here's the point. It's not really whether we want to believe in ev- evolution or creation. That doesn't, that's not really the point. See, if the world can convince you God doesn't exist, you're no longer accountable to Him. But if God exists, you are accountable to Him, and then there is a coming judgment. And unfortunately, those who say, I don't believe in God, may go to their, their death believing that, but they will be surprised. Years ago, we had a preacher, I think it was here, he said this. It's a silly phrase, but it's got a lot of truth behind it. He made this comment. He goes, there's going to be no unbelievers in hell and no believers in heaven. I heard that. I'm like, that's blasphemous. What are you talking about? He's like, people are going to get to heaven. They're like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. They're going to get to hell. Oh, I believe. The places are there. The places are real. The world wants you to believe that God doesn't exist. And fortunately, well, say, fortunately, he does. And that's a wonderful thing. But you know why it's wonderful? Because God's full redemption plan shows that this is not His desire for us to be judged. See, God is coming and judgment's coming. But see, God put His only Son upon the cross so that we don't have to endure the coming punishment. Hell was not created for you. It's created for the devil and his angels. But because we sin... We have chosen to go to hell, and God's like, I don't want you to go there. So we can see from Genesis all the way to Revelation what we call the redemptive plan. Man is sin. God gives us a way to come out of that to him. I'm not saying just baptism. I'm not saying church membership. All those things are great. They don't save you. I'm talking that you just put your faith in Almighty God, 
Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Repent and turn from your sin and turn to him. That's what the Bible tells us. That I go to him. That's what you can see it all the way through scripture. We talked about this last Sunday night. Abram goes to Egypt and there's all these problems. The next thing, God brings blessing. Because when we turn to God in repentance, God is always desiring to offer forgiveness. By the way, God has already given forgiveness. We just need to come to that place. So if you're here today and you say, let me ask you this question. Do you know for sure that if you died sometime this week, something tragic happened, your life ended, you'd be in heaven? I know there's people who say, you can't know that, preacher. First John 1, the Bible says, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I can go through a lot of scriptures. None of those are conditional. Well, what if I sin a whole lot? It doesn't matter. We, did, we were sinning when we came to Jesus. What I do after salvation doesn't matter because I'm not earning my salvation. It's a gift of God. Ephesians, for God so loved, uh, for by grace are we saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't get salvation because I'm good or I'm a good person. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring the righteous to repentance, but sinners. You know what that means? To come to Jesus, I don't need to be really good. I actually need to realize how bad I am that I need Jesus. You catch that? So many people say, I'm so bad, Jesus won't love me. That's exactly who Jesus came to save. The Bible says those of us who are self-righteous and believe we're good enough, God will never be able to reach us. It's when we realize we need him because of our sin and because we are so bad that we can come to him and he offers full forgiveness. Number three, and we'll be done, serving the Lord requires obedience to his word. Serving the Lord requires obedience to the word. I'm going to read a section of scripture to me that is intriguing. Chapter 6, verse 19. And he smote the men of Beshemash, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote the people, 50,000 and three score and ten men, 59,000 men. And the people lamented, because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kerestrium, I think I said that right, I'm not going to try again, saying, the Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. Now, here's an interesting thing happened. They bring the ark back to a place where it goes back to the children of Israel. They're done with it. They put all of these gold things in there to get this reward, and they send it back, and the children of Israel get it. But this one group's intrigued. You remember, the ark was always in the Holy of Holies, always in the place separate. Only really the high priests were supposed to see it, except for certain times when God said, bring it out. But no one was to see the inside. It was the presence of God. In those days, because Jesus had not died, because he had not dealt with, cut the rent, there was a barrier. And today, when Jesus died, the veil was rent in two. We come in the presence of God ourselves. But in the Old Testament, they couldn't do that. So there was a command. Do not look. Do not look at this. As a matter of fact, let me find that. It's actually Numbers chapter 4, verse 18. He says, Cut ye not off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but thus do ye unto them, that they may live and not die when they approach unto the most holy things. 
Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them every one to his service and to his burden, and they shall not go in to see the, when the holy things are covered, lest they die. He said the priest will see it, but no one else shall. So here's what happens. A bunch of these men were intrigued, kind of like little kids. I know it's a bad way to look at it, but they're like, I want to see what's inside. We're not allowed to see it. There it is. Let's go look. They knew the command. So what do they do? They come running up. They see the ark. What's in? And they start looking. Now, you remember there was a time, we'll look about this later, where the ark was coming home. David's bringing it home, and it fell, and someone grabbed it. You say, but wait a minute. I, God, I don't understand this. My, my motives were pure. My reasons were good. I just was intrigued. Lord, I want to see your greatness. I want to see this. But here's the thing you have to remember. It doesn't matter your motives if you're in a disobedience to God. You can have the greatest motives in the world, but you disobey God, it's still sin. You say, well, I don't, what, what about this and what about this and what about this? You know, one of the things that I've learned for years, the Bible doesn't really mince words, does it? When you look, well, I mean, there's 10 things in the book of Exodus, thou shalt not. If we just stuck with those 10 things, we have a lot to deal with, don't we? But it's so straightforward, our American government's yanking out of the court system. It's just a little too straightforward, isn't it? I don't like that. You know, every once in a while you get some people, well, it's not that big of a deal. And then you get that black and white person. It's either right or wrong. You, you ever been pulled over by the police and you look to them and you're like, well, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. One of the few times I've been pulled over, I'm coming home at our church on Monday nights at that time in Conyers, we would uh, do church visitations. I'm coming home. Now, I would say I'm in a hurry, I'm ready to go home, but I, I was doing the same speed down the, I live four miles from the church. So down this road, I'm doing the same speed I was always doing. The speed limit's 45, I'm doing 52. I know, I'm breaking the law, I, I, I got that. But during the day, everybody did about 60 plus. So that was fine. I was following the flow of traffic, right? Well, that evening, I was setting the flow of traffic. And apparently, you're not allowed to set the flow of traffic. So all of a sudden, I'm coming down, and I see a cop pass me, and all of a sudden, lights go on. Oh my God, it's Christmas. This is bad, right? So I, I pull over. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to wait for him down here. I pull over. He gets behind me. Uh, and you know what the only thing going through my mind is? How do I explain this ticket? This is going to cost money. That's what's going through my mind. Uh, whatever. He comes up to me, and he goes, sir, do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> Here's what's going through my mind, all right? Again, what's back here that never came out? You know what I want to say? Officer, I am fully aware of what speed I'm going because I always go that speed and often I'm behind you and you're going faster. Except tonight because I'm the only one here. And you must be low on your quota and that's why you pulled me over. You know all these things we think? I don't even know if that's true. I don't even know if they have quotas, to be honest. Mother McKenna, do they have quotas or are you allowed to say? No, okay. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to say. All right? So I'm sitting there, you're about to get in trouble from your boss. I'm going to find the guy going three miles over. That's going through my mind. He goes, you know how fast you're going? I said, yes, sir, I did. Do you realize you're going over the speed limit? Yes, sir. He goes, are you in a hurry to get home? Yes, sir. Why? I'm tired. He's like, are you sick? Nope. Nope, it's 8.50 and I want to be home. It's dark and I'm ready to go home. He's like, is there an emergency? He was being so nice. Is there an emergency at your house? Is your wife sick? Nope. So you were going that fast. Why? And I told him, because I always do. He looks at me. He's like, that's a good point. And I was like, but I got caught tonight. He looked at me and wait for something else to say. I said, and that's on me. He goes, oh, good point. All right. He walked back to the car. 
and then brought me back my $130 ticket. So now he was very kind. As he walked in, he's like, can I give you some advice? I don't remember the guy's name or badge number so I can say this. I was told not to say this. He's like, I can't give legal advice. So like, covers his badge. He's like, go in. They had this thing in, in Georgia called Nolo Contendere. You can put plead on the court. If you don't have a lot of tickets, they just ignore it. And I hadn't had one in years. I went in and I went to court. I pled this Latin word and they came back. Okay, 130 bucks as far as they're concerned. It never went on my ticket. It never went on my license. It didn't happen. All right. Now, I could have flipped out. I could have got angry. I could have said, how dare you? I, I could have said all the things that people want to say to that person sitting there. But the fact is, like it or not, I was breaking the law. And he was, he, you know what I could have done? I could have given him attitude, and that would have been a very, very different night. Here's the thing, though. We come and we get this idea that we can justify our actions to things of that, and this person falls, if that person had to treat me, if that person hadn't said this, or if this hadn't happened. And I hope you understand, these things can be legitimate. All of us at some point would acknowledge there's been a time, a circumstance, or a person in our life that has really hurt us. Amen? We can do one of two things. We can live over here angry at God because God allowed that to happen to us. Or we can embrace the holiness of God and say, God, give me the grace not to live in anger over that circumstance. Because that, that's prison. This is prison. The person who hurts you gets to hurt you for the rest of your life as long as you let them. And they might not even know they've done it. They're sleeping great at night and you're awake angry. You're living in prison right here in the holiness of God. You know what God said? Vengeance is mine. I'll take care of that circumstance and those people, if they're wrong, I want them to come back to me, so give them time. You just come to me, spend time with me, get right with me, let me take care of you, and then don't even worry about them. You say, Pastor, it's hard not to worry about them. Yes, it is, which is why we come here. Because we need God's grace to not worry about that. Every day don't you don't you wake up with all the things that go through your mind of your fears and your angers and your hurts and depression all the things you're afraid to hit that day that's why we go to the god in prayer we don't go to god in prayer because he's going to strike us down if we don't we go to god in prayer because we have too much to deal with today to do it alone and the holiness of god while it is judgment it's sweet it's mercy it's grace it's peace in the midst of the chaos that's the holiness of God. Why is that important? If my God's not holy, he can't overcome my problems. But because he is holy, nothing will come into my life that God cannot overcome. And that's why I hold on to it. That's why I look at it. Does it seem fair that these men were punished because of their actions? Well, it's either God's word or it's not. Those are your choices. So let me challenge you today. One, are we, are you involved in something? You can say, you know, maybe you're angry or you're just, whatever decision you've made. I could spend a lot of time. The downside to pointing out all the things is I'll miss something. You're like, well, pastor, you didn't say mine this morning. It doesn't matter. I'm not the one that points out sin. It's not my job. Is there something in your life that you could say God has pointed out to me? I'm living over here. I'm living indifferent to God. I don't really care. I'm li- I think God, he's just got to forgive me because he told me he would. I'm living over here in an indifferent yet captive world. And I have a lot of legitimate reason to be here. But is that legitimate reason worth me living in this prison? Or am I going to embrace the holiness of God, which includes his forgiveness? Acknowledge it as sin and give it to God today. Second of all, 
if, you, if I asked you earlier, when I asked you earlier, if you were to die this week, do you know where you'd spend eternity? The book of Romans says this, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, eternity in hell, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot be good enough for it. You cannot get baptized enough to get it. You cannot attend a church enough to get it. You can't get it from your parents. You can only get it from you turning and putting your faith in God. How do you do it? One, you have to recognize you're a sinner and you want to turn from your sin to God. Two, then you turn to God. You plead forgiveness and you put your faith in God. Not just as a symbol, token, a church thing to do. I turn to God. I put my faith in Him. He becomes my Lord. And I begin to follow him. It's a life change. Repentance is the word. I turn from sin to him. Unfortunately, I will still battle with sin. But that's where God begins to give me the grace to grow. Those are the two areas we can be. Maybe you say, you know what? I believe I'm right with God. Even God knows I'm right with God. We often say that. God's, you know, I'm okay with God. Well, does God know you're okay? And you say, I'm saved. Then I, you know, enjoy the great holiness of God. Enjoy the fact that he loves you, he's powerful, and then he can overcome.